so we continue our sermon series about wrestling with doubt. And so, you know, the first week we, um, we took on is, um, is God true? And then the second week we talked a little bit about, last week about is the Bible true? And then today we're gonna talk a little bit about is, is heaven true? And so let me begin um, by reading um, a couple of pieces of scriptures from the New Testament. Uh, this comes from 1 Timothy. I love this from the second chapter. Uh, this is right and um, it, it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the human Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a payment to set all people free. This was a testimony that was given at the right time. And from the Gospel of John, uh, the 14th chapter, I love this for chapter and verse. Uh, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have gone to told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. And then Thomas, and we know him as Downing Thomas, said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So you know what? Um, interesting. I, I want to share a few emails that I received this um this last week, and you know um here's um evidently something I said actually resonated with a few people because these are all great emails. I love that getting great emails. So um I got one from someone who comes on Saturday night. Uh, Pastor Harold, I want to say thank you for your um for your terrific sermon this past Sunday because I really appreciate the way you explain how. We all have doubts, and it's not easy for me to put it into words, but I just think uh, you did a nice job. Um, this is from another person. Um, on the way uh, home, this, partic- this couple um, uh, had shared because they both had lost their spouses. And at some point in my sermon last week, I talked at the very beginning about, you know, sometimes we've had doubt that's, that we can never fall in love again. And so this particular um, email was thanking me for making reference to that because they never thought, because they were both widows, that they were fall in love again. And that, um, so there was something that I said last week in the message that really resonated with them. They talked about that on their way home. They thanked me for that. Um, and then I had another person who um, was, that she said, I, Pastor Rod, thank you so much for your sermon. In 30 minutes, you cleared up a bunch of questions I've had for years. Um, without a doubt, you explain how it's okay to wonder how many times that, that, that things can coexist in my brain and heart and not be contradictory. My 10-year-old grandson is voicing some doubts right now, and I cannot wait to tell him to watch the sermon and sit down and talk to him a little bit more. We thank God um, for bringing us to New Covenant United Methodist. And then someone else shared with me this last week. Harold, thank you so much. We, um, you helped me have a better understanding of the Old and New Testament, but we're reading both through the filter of Jesus. And then I, I got a, a pretty lengthy one here that was really powerful, and um, it was making reference to this book that I shared with you all a couple of weeks ago, and it's entitled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. 
And um, when I said this, this triggered something in their life because this particular person shared with me that um, uh, she was a part of some group in the villages and um, her husband and, and there was a person by the name of George who um, was rather kind of cantankerous and a little snarky and she would be always coming up maybe a little late for their gathering and he was always making a comment to her, why you're so late? He says, well, I'm running late because I was at a church function and then I had to go from there to get here and he says, oh, church, and he was very kind of snarky about her going to church. And he was, um, so they continued to talk and evidently in his life, he was um, an altar boy. He was Catholic at one point, but he made it very clear that now he was an atheist and didn't want to have anything to do with God. And so they continued to have this dialogue. And finally, one day um, she gave him, she says, you know what? And this, she said, this went on for years. And, and she would, he was always trying to debate with her and try to put, you know, her, her faith down. And so this went back on them. So finally she went out and bought that book for him. And she handed, she says, why don't you read this book? And he says, well, I'm not making any promises, but evidently he was very, very smart and he was always asking questions. And so he read that book and he came back and, and God continued to evidently work on his heart. And then after, and she says, this went on for six years. And finally he came to her one day and says, I finally get it. I finally, truly get what you've been trying to tell me for years and years and years. And what I love about that, this email and about this testimony was that um, A, she didn't give up and um, how God continued to work and soften his heart. And sometimes we just, you think, well, you know, I'm never gonna make any headway with this person, but you know, this is really a true testimony how God used her and her persistence and used that little book over there, along with him, continued to evidently maybe read the Bible and finally God transformed his heart. And you know, there is a term for that. And um, we, in our Wesleyan tradition, we call that prevenient grace. And prevenient grace means that God's work in our hearts and sometimes we don't even realize that God's working behind the scenes, but there's this, and this is our Wesleyan tradition, that God's always trying to woo us into relationship with him. And so we have prevenient grace and justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And this is the grace that we live into day in and day out. As, we, as Wesley would say, we're going on to Christian perfection. And we may, may never be made perfect and whole in this life, but will we be made perfect and whole in our next life in heaven? Can I amen on that? Amen. So we've been talking about this, this, you know, is the Bible true? Is God true? Is heaven true? It's a great question. So what I was the other day I went to um, Bargains and Blessings, and um, you know what? Here's the interesting. Has anybody ever been to Bargains and Blessings? Okay. So you know you never know what you're gonna get or who you're gonna meet at Bargains and Blessings. Okay. So I, I go in there and I, I go through the front door and, and my friend Joe Wilson's there and he's doing the checkout thing and he was kind of kidding me. He says, Pastor, what in the world are you doing here? I said, Well, I just kind of check out things and see how things were going and so forth. And and I said something to the effect like, I mean, I just want to see what Jesus is up to around here and and then immediately, as soon as I said that, there was a person off to my left who was sitting on one of the, well, we have all this furniture as you walk into the main entrance of Bargains and Blessings, and he's sitting on the couch. Now, what I think of like that couch, it kind of reminds me of when my, my, my father was alive and my mother would always go shopping at Bell's or J.C. Penney's or Jordan Marsh, and my father would always find the couch right? She would go shop and he would find the couch or he'd find some kind of chair. So even at Bargains and Blessings, we got the husband couch or chair. So there's a guy sitting there um, and he immediately, when I said the word Jesus, uh, he piped up and he says, I know Jesus. 
And so immediately I go from you know, having this conversation with Joe and I, I gravitated over to this guy. I said, what's your name? He says, my name's Tim. And he says, I know all about Jesus. He says, I, I've died and I've gone to heaven. And I said, have you now? I said, tell me about that. He says, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I was run over. He says, I was literally run over by a train and I was in a coma for 12 days and I lived to be able to tell this story. He says, I even got scars. So he takes his hat off. He starts showing me these scars and so forth. And I said, well, listen, I got run over by a truck and I want you to know, here are my scars. And so I showed him my scars. He showed me his scars and we're having a bonding moment. Okay, but it all started... It all started with this conversation about the whole thing about Jesus. And I said, well, so then I got intrigued after we showed each other scars. And I said, so Tim, so tell me a little bit about heaven. So when you were there, did, and my first question is, did you see Jesus? And he says, yes, I did see Jesus. And my second question is, well, what did Jesus look like? He says, he looked just like all the pictures you see. I said, oh. And so immediately I'm thinking about my friend Don Piper who, you know, he spent 90 minutes in heaven and he talked about he never actually got to see Jesus, but he said he felt the presence of Jesus and he knew that Jesus is off up the hill and he could see it and he feel God, Jesus's presence. So then in my next question, I said, well, let me sit down. I said, did you hear any music in heaven? And then he says, oh yes, I heard music. And I said, so what did you hear in the music? What were they singing? He says, holy, holy, holy. And I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting because that's exactly what my friend Don Piper said the angels were singing. Wow, holy, holy, holy. I said, Tim, did you see anybody there that you knew when you got there? And he said, oh, yeah, I saw people. And I said, well, who did you see that you knew? He says, I saw my dad, which is exactly what Don Piper talked about. He wrote a whole book about people that he had met in heaven, the people that helped him get from here to there. And one of the persons that he said he saw there was his father. I thought that was pretty powerful. And, and then I, I, I kind of continued to push him a little bit more and ask him a few more questions. And he, this is one of the things that he, um, oh, I asked him about the light. I said, did you see light? So yeah, the light, light's everywhere, Harold. Every, it's, just, it's awful, of light. And once again, it reminded me what Don Piper said, you know, there is no need for the sun in heaven or the moon because the countenance of Jesus Christ is all the light you need. Wow. By the way, that's biblical. And one of the things that um, Tim continued to refer to in this experience my talking to him, he kept coming back to, and I thought this is really intriguing. He says, you know what, they're all, and I bet you he didn't say it, I bet he said it five times, at least five times in this like six minute conversation. He says, Harold, I want you to know that they're all waiting on the second coming. I thought, oh, he says, yeah, they're all, they're all waiting. They're people are, the, the angels are all waiting. The people in heaven are all waiting for the second coming. There's gonna be a second coming, it's coming. And so he kept emphasizing the point, the importance of the second coming. People are waiting in heaven for the second coming. I thought, wow, that's really, that's really, really powerful. And then um, all of a sudden his, uh, I wanted to ask him more because I just was fascinated with this conversation. So the next thing you know, his wife walks up and says, Tim, it's time to go. And he got up and left and went out the door. I said, Tim, I've got more questions. Nope, got to go. That was it. <laughs> so I just, I was just really kind of blown away by that conversation I had with Tim about his, his 12 years days of being in a coma and being run over by a train and because the guardrail thing was up and he went through and never saw the train coming. Wow. Is there a heaven? 
You know what? It was very interesting. I, get, I didn't get to this last, last night in my sermon, so I'm going to put it at the beginning so I'll make sure I get to it. You know, um, what do we know from the Bible that teaches us uh, about heaven? So I think this is, let's go to um, Jesus on the cross, okay? And this is really interesting the way that Jesus describes heaven, isn't it? Because, so Jesus is on the cross, and then there's the thief to his right, and there's the thief to his left, and so um, one thief is deriding him. He's an, he's an atheist. He's, he's throwing Jesus on the bus. And he says, you know, Jesus, if you really are the son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us too? Ha, 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 right? And then the other one says, you know, basically you're an idiot. Don't you see that we deserve, we're getting exactly what we deserve, but this man is righteous. And then um, in the midst of that conversation, Jesus tells that man, he says, surely you will be with me in paradise. And the word paradise is really taken, and that's a really great metaphor, isn't it, when you think about paradise. It's an interesting word. Paradise was actually used like um, uh, in, in relation to going to a, a, like a Persian king's illustrious and beautiful garden. And it would be like a, a treat. It would be like an honor to be able to go to this this garden to be able to walk through. And Jesus uses that word paradise. In other words, it's this perfect, beautiful place. That's the word Jesus uses. We also know in the Bible that, um, and I think this is really, really powerful. Let me give you a personal experience about this. Um, in the Bible, the, um, the heavens referred to like a great wedding banquet. And so Jesus is always using metaphors and language that people could relate to, right? So we have this image of the, uh, and the wedding banquet in the Jewish tradition was a really big deal. I mean, you know, we know that it usually would be like a week festival. You know, that's the whole Jesus turned the water into wine. They run out. Mary goes to Jesus, you know, they, they run out of wine. You got to do something. So Jesus turns the water into wine. It's a really big deal, right? And so we have this imagery of the wedding banquet and it's this, one of the most powerful points and joyous occasions in a, in a Jewish person's life is a wedding. And so once we have this image of what, what heaven's life, you know, Jesus being referred to like a bride adorned for her husband. Yeah. My son actually, on um, one year, I took, um, I took Logan with me to the Holy Land and he met up with one of his Jewish friends who was there in the Holy Land and so it just turned out that they were there at the same time and so he left for a, a day or so and spent the whole day with her and he got entrenched into the Jewish tradition culture which is totally different from what you normally would get being a part of just a tour with um, with a bunch of tourists. So he, he was, um, he, and he got to go to a wedding. It wasn't just any wedding, it was a Bedouin wedding. It was a Bedouin, Bedouins are the people who actually live off the land. They have, and the, um, the, the land doesn't technically own, they don't own it, but they just live off the land. That's how it's part of the Jewish tradition there in Israel. And so he said, he says, dad, I got to go to this wedding. It was the most amazing thing. He says, the whole community, everybody got invited. It was they actually, I think evidently they rented out of a school and they had, it was on a, like on a basketball court. And he said, it was just this amazing um, event that he'll never forget. And I thought it was rather intriguing how he described this great wedding banquet that everybody from high and low came to be a part of this wedding. And that just happened a couple of years ago. And by the way, they've been celebrating weddings like this for thousands of years in Israel. 
So Jesus uses this tradition, this, this feeling of the wedding banquet as, um, as a kind of a imagery of what heaven would be like, a joyous occasion. Um, we also know that um, Jesus talks about, and uh, there's a mansion, I, and he says, I've got to prepare a, a place for you, a mansion, and in my mansion, in, my, in my, this mansion, I've got many rooms prepared for you. In other words, he's got a prepared place for you and me, right? And I love, once again, that imagery, because when you think about, I don't know if you realize this, but, um, and they've actually done excavation. Uh, back a, thousand, you know, a couple thousand years ago, what they would do is the, the um, father would have a house, and if he had um, a son or two, what the, when the son would get married, um, a lot of times the son would get married and then they, he would have his bride and then they would add on to the father's house. And so they would add rooms on to the master, to the major person's, the father's house, and they continue to add rooms. So I don't know how big the, the daughter-in-law was thinking about moving in with the mother-in-law, but I just know that's how they used to do it, right? And so we have this, once again, Jesus is drawing upon this imagery that you're adding rooms on, and Jesus says, I've got a room for you in heaven. Uh, we also know that in, in their tradition that, and so in, um, what's very interesting is that Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time, I think this is really intriguing. He is focused, if you look at synop, the synoptic gospel, synoptic means to seem to be seen together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's this imagery that, that Jesus draws upon and he doesn't put all this emphasis so much about getting us all to heaven. More about Jesus, once again, continue, especially the gospel of Matthew, reminds us of really bringing heaven down to earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said that, right? Teach us how to pray. Jesus taught us how to pray. We just said it just a minute ago. And so we find here in, in the synoptic gospels, Jesus really, is, his emphasis is about how do we bring what is right and holy and pure and the likings of what this paradise in heaven and bring it bound, down to here so we can live this perfect life that what God really wants us to live a life of love and hope and mercy and justice and caring for each other because that's what heaven's like. He says, this is what it should be like here. And so we get this, this image. I mean, we, we find it in Matthew 25 where taught Jesus, said, and this, the title of that Matthew 25 is the judgment of the nations, right? There's a separation between the goats and the sheep. And then Jesus gives this great story and he says, you know, um, talks about um, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. He says, you know, when did I see you? You know, and, and well, I, when, I was, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. When you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And so we have this image that Jesus is talking about, not so much about how spend all his time focused on how do we get everybody up there, but Jesus really wants to get us this, this feeling of bringing heaven here on earth. And then we, and then we get to the Gospel of John, and, and John, there's this emphasis once again that in John's Gospel, the emphasis is, has to do with the, Jesus being the resurrection and Jesus being the resurrection of life and how important that is for John and seeing that there is this, this symbolism, there's this representation to Jesus' death and resurrection that Jesus stands at Lazarus' tomb as he brings him out. Lazarus, come out. 
He comes out in his grave clothes. I think it's one of the most dramatic stories in the whole Bible. And then Jesus says, unbind him. I love that. Free him. Doesn't have to be bound by death anymore. He's fret set free. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life. Yeah. So you got all that going on. Is heaven really true? Is God really true? Is the Bible really true? Yeah. So I was thinking about that this week and reflecting. So here's my, here's my first little question for us to think about and ponder. Matter of fact, um, can you put that slide up of the, the wailing wall? Here's my first question is, you ready? Who gets in? And, and the reason why I share that picture with you is there's my picture. The person on the right is my son, Cameron. This is taken a couple of years ago. And then the, the person on the left is a Jewish Orthodox person who goes there every single day along with thousands and thousands of other Jewish people who are very devout and faithful in their belief in God. And so I, I just love that picture because you've got a Christian there who's praying to God through and his belief in Jesus Christ. I know what that's what is in, heart, in the heart of, G, of, of Cameron and my children, because that's what they've been taught. But then I also know something that there's this Orthodox Jewish person there and, um, who's very devout in his belief in, in God. It also reminds me of one day I was in New York visiting and I had to take a taxi. That's always an eventful experience, taking a taxi in New York. And so the taxi cab driver, he and I struck up a conversation. He says, hey, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. He said, oh, you're a pastor. I said, he said, yeah, I said, I'm a Christian. And he started asking me questions about my faith. And then I asked him a little bit about his faith. And he was Muslim. And, and what was very interesting in that conversation, I learned a lot about the Muslim faith. And what I got out of his conversation after about 30 minutes of spending time with him in the taxi cab, the Muslim faith puts a lot of emphasis on what we would call works righteousness. In other words, if you do enough good things, and he talked about all the wonderful things that he had done, and somehow that all adds up to earning his way to be able to get to heaven. And of course, we don't believe that as Christians. We believe that we're saved by God's amazing grace through the atonement of Jesus dying upon a cross, and we cannot earn our way to heaven. But we continue to love each other because Jesus Christ is the source of our love. Amen on that? Okay. So, so, but I, I say that, and I, I ask the question, you know, so... You know, who gets in? So we got, you know, the Muslim person who's very um, devout in his faith and in his, her faith. And you got the, the Orthodox Jewish person at the Wailey Wall that goes there every single day to go and pray, literally thousands and thousands. And then you got the Christians that go there and they pray. So who gets in? So in order to be able to answer this question for us and break this down, everybody still with me? We do okay. All right. So here's here's what I, I want to share with you all today, and I'm going to teach you. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm hoping that this may um, um, maybe pushing you a little bit, but I, I got to tell you, in per, in preparation, I spent hours researching this. Okay, so this is not just off the top, off Pastor Harold's head. No, no, I went and I did. I read comment, uh, commentaries. I I did a lot of research, and I went and I went digging because I want to know what did Jesus really mean when he says, "I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but my me, but through me." So the first thing we have to understand when Jesus said that there are seven I am sayings. Okay, and this is one of the, and according to the Gospel of John, there's seven. So let's put these up on the screen. So the first one is, I am the bread of life. Um, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. Um, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. 
I am the way and the truth and life, and the number seven is I am the true vine. Okay, so we have these seven I am saints. So in order to understand that, you have to understand there's, well, you gotta kinda understand the story before the story, okay? So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, let's just start with that. So let me just teach for a second. So what we find here is that Jesus says, I am the way. And the word way there is really symbolic. It's also, it's symbolism that we find and not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, that's simple. When he says, I'm the vine, that's a symbol. Well, I'm the good shepherd, that's a symbol. And the word their way is actually used in a symbolic way. The first symbol that we find in the Gospel of John is the word word or the word logos. So when Jesus comes on, in the, in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Did you get that? Okay, so in the beginning was the word and then John goes on and says, as you continue, wake your, make your way down, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So we, that's the first symbol that we find in the gospel of John. And so when we look at this, so you have Jesus being the way and you got bread and wine, vine and, um, and, and, and the shepherd. And, and what's very interesting, if you go back to the Old Testament, the word, in the Proverbs, the word way is also symbolic, which means a lifestyle of the wise. That's what it means in Proverbs. The word way literally means that in the book of Proverbs. If you go put to the book of Psalms, the symbolic meaning of the word way has to do with living by the law or living into the will of God. That's what you find in the book of Psalms, okay? But when you get to Jesus and his reference to this particular text today, Jesus is talking about the way it means, what it means to be a faithful person. It, it means ultimately to have some sense of unity with God. So this is really important when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. The way has to do with the symbolism and it has everything to do with having, being living as a faithful person, but also his unity and our unity with God. And the word, when he goes on and says, I am the way, and then he goes on and says, I am the truth and the Life, okay, so the word truth and life, these are really important words because it, uh, when you put them together, it means, it clarifies that how and the why Jesus really is the way. Okay, so we, when you look at Jesus talking about him being the, I am the way and the truth and the life, when you take these two words, these two words clarify how Jesus Christ really is the way. And when you think about the way, these two words actually are connected with the other two references that Jesus makes in the seven I am sayings, and that Jesus is the gate, and which means he, we have access to God. And the word shepherd, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, that means that we have the embodiment of God. And so what's very, very powerful when you put these, all this together, when you think about Jesus being the gate, it describes how he is the truth and life. And when you look at the word shepherd, it actually describes why he is the truth and life because ultimately we have an access point to God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God. And so when we look at all this together, this is really, really important because what John is trying to make it crystal clear for all of us to understand is when you look at Jesus Christ, we are looking God in the flesh right out of the gate. And we call this, 
in theological, theological terms, the incarnation. Okay, so when you look at all this together, here's my next little point, is that the word truth means, the, affirms that Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is truly the word became flesh. And then we look at, and we call this an incarnation, and then we look at Jesus being the way, it really means that we continue to cling to the promise of the unity with God, that Jesus Christ is unified with God our Father. And we have an access point through Jesus Christ, and then we have the embodiment of Jesus Christ, and it's fulfilled, and we see that, and the connection and the unity that Jesus has with his heavenly Father and God. And then we have that Jesus brings God's gift of life to the world. Can I be met on that? Because he had, we have our access point, we have the embodiment point, and that Jesus is the access point to God's promises of life and salvation. Now you know the rest of the story. You are now theologians. <laughs> and so why did I tell you all this? And the reason why I told you all this is that we have to understand. And so I, in my research this week, and I thought this is really, really, so let me just read this. So to recognize Jesus as the truth is to affirm that he is the Logos, the word became flesh, and the truth is available to the whole world to acknowledge your relationship with Jesus Christ is the liberating truth of God. Jesus's life and ministry are ultimately a witness to God's truth. And so we, and what I read this week, and I thought this is very powerful. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes, by, comes to the Father but by me, this is a joyous statement to the religious community of believers that truly believes that we have access to God through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But nowhere in this, is, and this is, um, and once again, I would encourage you, if you want to go and research for this for yourself, I, I would encourage you to do this, okay? But when we get to that part, so I just shared with you the story before the story, I am the way and the truth and the life, all that's going on. And then Jesus goes on and says, no one comes to the Father but by me. That is not meant to be exclusive, to take that and well, Jesus is not ultimately shooting arrows at other world religions. This is really, really important. And so when, you, when we look at this, this part of the story, everything I've read, that, that when you look at that particular statement, a lot of people have read that and maybe misread it or maybe misinterpret everything I read about when he says, no one comes to the Father but, my, but, but through me. This is not meant to be a take shots or throw other world religions under the bus. What it's meant when Jesus said this and when John's writing this in a, in a context, he wants to make sure he's saying, and this is really, this is the real deal. This is the boundaries that we, we believe as Christians. And this is what John is trying to make it crystal clear to all the Christian believers. This is what we believe. Other people might believe what they might believe, but this is what we are standing on that we truly believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnation of Almighty God, fully human and fully divine, and we ain't coming off of it. This is what we believe. So it comes back to my question, who gets in? Now, here's, here's what I believe. And I really, you know, and I'm, I've had several, I actually, last night, I had a very interesting conversation with someone who works with grief share. And, and she said you know, to me, she's no Pastor Harold, this is what I get over and over again. She says, people are really concerned about their loved ones because they're afraid that maybe they didn't get in. So here's what I think. I really believe with my whole heart, I'm not the one to judge. And the thing is, you're not the one to judge. I believe that when, when people get to heaven, I think that God looks at everybody's heart. And God knows your heart. He knows the belief in your heart. And that's left up to God. 
So, but I truly believe, and I also believe this, and I, I read this this last week, and I, I thought this is a great illustration. I think that once everybody finally gets up towards the heaven and God's, you know, there's a, there is, and Jesus talks about the separation of the goats and the sheep, right? So when you get to heaven, I think that God knows everybody's heart. He looks at their heart. He realizes their heart. But I think that once everybody finally gets up there, you go, oh, it was Jesus all along. Now I get it. One minute. Now I get it. In the words of George. So when I think about this in perspective, you know what? There's so much power in the realizing, you know, it's not my place to judge other people. It's not your place to judge other people. But it is our place to really place our faith in this Jesus Christ really truly is the way and the truth of life. And this is what we stand on. And this is what we believe. And when we get to heaven, that is what we're banking on. It's the truth. Because Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I believe that God knows people's hearts. I'll close with this thought today. Man, I had so much more I wanted to talk about. But that's okay. We'll come back next week. My little granddaughter, I think I got a picture of my granddaughter and my daughter. I'm going to throw that up. So do you think they look a little bit alike? Okay, so there you go. So my little granddaughter this last week said something very, very profound. She's, um, she's going to be five in December. But she, you know what? She's wise beyond her years. And I, I'm not just saying that because she's my granddaughter and she's brilliant. But other than that, that's okay. <laughs> um, she was really sick this week. She got an infection and um, she was, um, her fever went to 105. And, and they rushed her to the hospital. And so she was not feeling good. And they, so they finally figured out the source of her infection. So, um, and she has felt really, she actually has felt bad all week. And um, so in the middle of the week, um, Olivia called and told um, her mother, she said, um, so how's Marley doing? She says, Mom, I, I asked Marley this week. She says, Marley, what can Mommy do to help you? Because she was just miserable and pathetic. When you're sick, you know what I'm talking about, right? And this is what Marley said. Mommy, I just want you to fix my broken heart. And to me, that was a really, really powerful statement. Because in her little mind, her whole being is connected to her heart. Her physical being, her emotional spirit be, being, her spiritual being, it's all somehow, mommy, I'm just, I'm miserable. I'm hurting. I'm sick. I'm sick and tired of being sick. And I just, mommy, can you just fix my broken heart? And I think what I just spent the last 15, 20 minutes trying to explain to you all is that God sent his only begotten son, his name is Jesus, the incarnation of who he is. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at God in the flesh. And the reason why God sent his only son is to fix a broken world that has a lot of broken hearts. And he brought... We sent Jesus to bring healing and hope. And let me tell you something. I know there are some people out there who are just ridden with guilt. 
I know there's some people out there who are ridden with unforgiveness. I know that there are people out there that have been abused and they're having a hard time. And here's the beautiful thing is that when we trust and place our faith in Jesus Christ, God sent his son to heal broken hearts and to heal a broken world. And then someday when we all get to heaven, we realize and say, oh, right. Jesus is the right guy all along. And we place our faith in him. Amen.